Eyes closed or be partially closed. Is this comfortable for you? And awareness will simply reflect whatever's happening clearly and effortlessly. I can assure you that will be the best part of the talk. <laughs> it's, uh, it's neat for me to be here tonight. Uh, it's been a few years since I've done one of these uh, Wednesday evening talks. And uh, it's nice to know that the Dharma Hall has not been moved. And uh, it's nice to see a room full of people on such a cold night. Um, I always wonder uh, what brings people out here in Cambridge uh, on a Wednesday night. Clearly, it's not because you don't have anything else to do uh, or any place else to go. Um, and it's really um, it's a treat for me to, to to sit here with you. For you know, I mean, you come here for your love of the Dharma. Now, maybe you're just curious, but since you don't know me, you can't be that curious. Um, so, um, I kind of get a running start on these talks over a couple of weeks. It used to be that they would make you uh, submit a title for a talk, uh, like several months in advance. And, uh, uh, my favorite title for the talk was, I don't know. Um, it always struck me as just completely incongruous that three months ahead of time I was supposed to figure out what would be most meaningful and most relevant uh, for me to talk about uh, three months down the road. Um, and there was this really interesting, at least on my end, kind of fun dance between myself and the people who would try and nail me down. Um, 
<laughs> now they just put in Dharma talk. I think it's an improvement. Um, as many of you, I'm sure, do from time to time, you look at the books that you've got in your bookcase and uh, maybe randomly pick a book or a book just kind of jumps out at you that you haven't, uh, haven't played with for a while. And uh, I, how many of you know the book Novice to Master? It's a memoir uh, by Soko Morinaga. Great. Because um, I can tell you a little bit about it. <laughs> Uh, so this was the book that hopped out, and I noticed that as typical of most of the books that I have on my shelf in the last, you know, few years, there was a bookmark about three-quarters of the way into the book. <laughs> That's as far as I can get anymore for some reason. Um, the title, the, the sort of bold print title is Novice to Master. And this is a, a, a guy who died in 1995. He was a Rinzai Zen master, quite well-known and, and very respected. Um, and the, uh, the subtitle in small red print, sort of in the upper corner of the, of the dust jacket, is um, uh, an ongoing lesson in the extent of my own stupidity. <laughs> you got to love it, right? I mean, it's, and, and we could spend easily tonight and probably several talks unpacking that. Um, ongoing lesson. Uh, you know, this practice, uh, we don't graduate from. Uh, it's not like we get our degree, we get our diploma, uh, we get our authorization to teach or whatever, and we're done. Uh, life is always new, and if we take life as our teacher... Uh, the lesson's always shifting just a little bit, and we find that what we've uh, so-called learned in the past doesn't quite fit the, the newness of something that's never, ever happened before. And so there's this ongoing um, lesson uh, that we're presented with moment to moment. And there's, you can really see a shift in people's practice when, um, when they get that. They, the idea of, oh, I'm going to get this, or I'm going to somehow be different, um, begins to fade, begins to sort of drop away a little bit. And there's this growing interest of, wow, what, what is this? You know, it's the perennial koan. What is this? Who am I? How do I meet this now? Um, so ongoing lesson. Uh, in the extent of my own stupidity, uh, you can substitute ignorance or confusion. Um, the human mind, I think, never gets over that. It's not like there's a cure for uh, confusion. Uh, it, more we become uh, more intimate with it, more comfortable with it, if you will, less reactive, less driven by it. Um, and since you know, this moment has never shown up before, there has to be, if we're really alive to it, a bit of feeling a little off balance. Uh, and that can often give rise to what we call confusion, delusion, ignorance, uh, in uh, Morinaga Roshi's uh, word, stupidity. Um, but that's not what I want to talk about, even though I just did. Um, he tells a story. Uh, his first real teaching encounter with his teacher, uh, uh, Zuigan Goro Roshi, who was a, at that point 70 years old, 
a very widely respected teacher. Um, and uh, at that time, and still to some extent, getting into a Zen training monastery was uh, more challenging than getting into boot camp. Uh, in in uh, boot camp, you uh, sign up, and you get in, and then they start giving you a hard time. Zen monasteries, they start giving you a hard time before they let you in. And by hard time, I mean really hard time. Uh, long periods of sitting, um, what we would consider verbal and physical abuse. It's not, I think, one of the, one of the prettier sides of Japanese Zen uh, teaching. Uh, but he goes through this lengthy process to be admitted. And then he has an interview with, uh, with uh, uh, Goto Roshi, who basically says, why are you here? And Morinaga goes into this hour-long spiel about his life and what he's doing there, and, and uh, uh, Roshi says, well, can you trust me? He's a young guy. He's in his 20s. And the, the subtext in, in his mind, it's like a Woody Allen movie, right? What's coming out of his mouth is going to be different than what's going on in his head. Um, trust you. I don't know you. Uh, what am I supposed to try? And so this goes on for a while. And, and uh, basically, the teacher says, if you can't trust me, you can go home. Can you trust me? And he says, I can trust you. So at that point, teacher picks him up, says, let's go out and sweep the garden. Out they go to sweep the garden, which is piled high with leaves. And uh, this young student decides he really wants to impress his teacher, and he goes, you know, throws himself right into the work of sweeping leaves, and pretty soon accumulates a large pile of leaves. Goes to the teacher and says, where should I throw the trash? He says that his teacher roared at him. There is no trash. Little little flummoxed. He says, well, you know, <laughs> what's this? Um, he says, but what should I do? Go get, the, go get the charcoal bag out of the shed and bring it over. So he walks across the monastery, gets the bag, brings it back. And when he gets back, this, this old man is, is sorting through these leaves, sifting through these leaves. And pretty soon, he's got the leaves separated from the stones and the moss and the grass and the sticks and all the stuff that's mixed in with the leaves. Starts stuffing the leaves into the bag. And pretty soon, he's got a big bag full of leaves. says... Take it over to the ofuro, the, the bath, the Japanese-style bath. We'll use it to start the fire and keep the fire going for the tub. So he tosses the leaves over his back, goes off to the tub, thinking, well, I guess maybe the Roshi was right. This, this isn't trash. This is useful. But that other stuff, you know, that's definitely trash. He comes back and he finds this old man still on his hands and knees, sorting through the rest of the junk. And uh, pretty soon he's got all the stones, all the little stones from the garden area separated from all the other stuff. He says, take this and then put it in around the gutters the, where it's been washed away and, you know, in the different parts of the monastery garden. Uh, 
uh, that need to be refilled. So he takes the, the stones and at this for another, you know, hour or so, um, thinking, okay, well, I guess maybe this is really useful and kind of looks nice. I think I've done a pretty nice job. Goes back. Um, and the teacher's got a handful of little pieces of moss and dirt, and, and he's putting them down. He's going around in the garden, and he's putting them down in the divots and places that have been nicked and pushing him down with his foot. And by the time he gets done, there's nothing left. There's nothing left. It's all been used. And he turns to this young man and he says, do you get it? From the very beginning, with people and things, there is no trash. What a beautiful metaphor for our practice, hmm? There is no trash in our relationships. Uh, I'll just say in our relationships, because we're always in relationship with something. You know, whether it's our own thinking, or uh, our self-image, or our uh, putting on our coat, stepping out into the cold air, uh, fixing supper, dealing with our kids, our partners, our bosses, our colleagues. We're always in relationship. And there is no trash. Trash, garbage, refuse. The worthless sort of detritus that we can get rid of. Now if you take that as a, as, a, as a guide for practice, what does that leave you with? It leaves you with less throwaway mind. I mean, we live in a throwaway culture because we've developed throwaway mind. You know, we, we, we think we see what, what we've got in our hand, and we don't. We see an image of what we've got in our hand or, or an image of the person that's standing in front of us or an image of the driver that just turned without a turn signal and jumped lanes. Okay? We think we see, but what we've got is an image, and that's what we're in relationship with. And we can do all kinds of unfortunate things with that image. And unfortunately, we lose track that that image is us. You know, if I'm, oh, what an idiot that guy is. He can't drive. Well, the only idiot on the road at that point is, right? And I don't see this other person. I've thrown him away or I've thrown her away. A thought comes up in the mind that's really kind of stinky. You know, it's like the it's like the stuff in the garbage can that you should have taken out yesterday. And it's smelly in the mind. And there's an aversion to that. And let's get rid of that. Let's go back to the breath or let's do some meta or let's, you know, let's try and figure this out. No trash. No trash. So that we begin to, to shift our relationship with whatever comes up from how can I get rid of this? Where can I hide this? to how can I learn from this? How is this useful? How can I be in relationship with this? And that's uh, much of what our practice is. It's to begin to slow down our reflexive 
reactivity that gets us sort of off the dime and moving too quickly to be in genuine relationship with what's come up. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with a book by David Boehm uh, called Thought as a, as a System. Uh, I think it's um, one of the real undiscovered and relatively unknown gems of the 20th century. Anybody who is interested in Chitta Nupasana and really uh, uh, looking deeply into the mind, it's, it's really helpful to have a map of what's going on there. Now, clearly, the map is not the territory, and it has limited usefulness, but it does have usefulness. And Boehm's book uh, lays out how thought works around this, this kind of thing. You know, that, that thought um, uh, acts as though it's, a, it's an objective observer. It's just describing what's out there. And in fact, it's actively creating what our experience is of the so-called out there and in here. So thought, uh, there's a perception. Okay? Whatever that perception is, comes through sight, sound, touch, taste, smell. And it registers. And it registers as a, as a, as a bodily sense. And it can have a pleasant, unpleasant tinge to it. And the mind takes off with that. Uh, and it begins to create a story. It creates an image. And the problem with that is that thinking believes that its description is actually an accurate description of what's being described. And it's not at all. One of the real wonderful insights of, of our practice is when we begin to notice just how mechanical and conditioned thinking is. And we begin to see the difference between skillful and unskillful thinking. And to some extent, it's not rocket science. Skillful thinking is relatively clean and uh, not burdensome. Unskillful thinking hurts to one degree or another. Um, so thinking wraps itself up in itself and produces these uh, conditions that we then act out of. So to begin to see, to slow down uh, these relationship moments and to begin to see that there is no trash. If we're really taking life at the teach as a teacher, then what is there to throw out? Now, there's another piece to this. There's the throwing out piece and there's the holding on piece, the grabbing on to piece, and they go together. Um, they're like the front and the back of the hand. Um, rather than talking about holding on and the dynamics of that, I want to say a couple of words about letting go because there's a, there's a lot of, of uh, uh, talk in meditation circles about letting go. And it's a, it's a tri tricky thing because for most of us, for a good part of our practice, and this is one of the reasons that uh, some teachers will say, you pick up a practice like this, you know, it'll take you six months to a year before you really begin to uh, appreciate the depth of, of this way of living. Um, so 
letting go often is aversion in disguise. Uh, letting go is not something we can do. Letting go is not a, not a, a me uh, uh, activity. It's often talked about, and even you hear Ajahn Chah say, uh, a little letting go and you have a little happiness, and a lot of letting go and you have a lot of happiness, and on complete letting go, you have complete happiness. Um, I mean, even the great ones give you, you know, a little carrot and stick uh, progression uh, thing. But if you, if you look at these teachings, letting go is something that's happening all the time. It's not something we have to work on. We have to work on recognizing it. Now, what's the difference? Everyone who's been here uh, sitting this evening, and even for the few couple of minutes that we sat, most likely experienced the mind taking off someplace. I know I did. Um, You might have found yourself dozing off. I know I did. Uh, you might find some aversion coming up. I did. This is how the human mind operates. <laughs> I don't care how long you sit or you know how how deep your insight is. You still got a human mind. There's, there's really no escape from being a human being. That's the bad news. If you all want to leave now, it's okay. Um, And there's an, enor- there's an enormous possibility for freedom in being a human being that we don't have to wait for. It's not five years down the road or 20 years down the road or when you've had some great you know, enlightenment experience. It's available now. It's available in that moment when uh, waking up happened. You wake up out of being lost in thought. Now, so did you say to yourself, okay, we're about 10 minutes into the sit. I think I will now get lost in thought for five minutes. No. Neither did you say, okay, I think I will wake up from this foggy mind. You didn't. You didn't do any of those. Our, Our nature is to fall asleep and wake up. It's just what we do. We're doing it all the time. It takes no effort to fall asleep. I mean, if you've got a sleep disorder, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going there with you tonight. <laughs> um, you sit for any length of time. You're going to sleep and waking up over and over and over again. What a marvelous opportunity to begin to notice being awake again. It's, and it's effortless. The effort is to begin to notice it and have some appreciation of it. That's awakening. That's not something you get after solving, you know, a thousand koans or going through all the jhanas or, you know, sitting a gazillion, you know, retreats. That's something you can get right now. I mean, even even as, as I'm talking, it's happening. 
You're, you're drifting in and out. You're listening. You're just, you know, you get pulled off to something. You're thinking about what you're hearing. And then you're back. It, I think it's one of the coolest things about being a human being. And, and one of the, it, it costs nothing. Okay? It's always happening. It's like, you don't have to worry about trains coming through every 15 or 20 minutes. This train's coming through like every 30 seconds. Right? It's really wonderful. So the, the, the letting go piece is not about the effort we put in. It's really about more and more seeing the effortlessness of being awake. I, uh, I had the good fortune a couple of, you know, it's, it's been more than a couple of years now, it was two years before she died. Um, I spent three weeks with a woman named Vimala Takar in, in Mount Abu in India. And uh, uh, there were a couple of, there were a number of things that I, I remember about those meetings. Uh, two of which were, uh, at one point, she sort of, she fixed me. She had this amazing uh, face and, and incredible eyes. And at one point, she just sort of froze me. I felt like a deer in the headlights. And she said, you've been at this a very long time. You're really accomplished at this. Why are you not free? <laughs> I mean, what do you say to something like that, right? And she was absolutely right. And later on, she, she expanded on that. She said, look, I see people all the time. They've been at this stuff 30, 40 years, and they're still practicing. They're still efforting. They think they're still going to get something when it's right under their feet. Now, many of us have to work very hard to see the obvious. You know, as my as my friend Wood Shoemaker, some of you may know, he used to teach with Larry and I. Uh, he's out in uh, New Mexico. He said, "Doug, you're not the sharpest tool in the shed. <laughs> it can really take a while for a lot of us, you know, uh, to to stumble into what is so easy." Uh, and I I encourage you to to. Um, See if you can begin to appreciate the ease in this practice. It's a heck of a lot of hard work, often. And I think that uh, without some real diligence, without persistence, without a real devotion to a real practice, it's like looking for water by digging, you know, six-inch holes all over the field. All you have is something you're going to sprain your ankle in. You'll never get water. And... See if you begin to catch this spontaneous waking up. Because as you begin to incline the mind in that direction, you'll find an ease in your practice and you'll find an ease in your living that I think will surprise you. Uh, sitting practice is, I think, essential. But it's not sufficient. We have to begin to notice that we're you know, being freed up continuously. That's our nature. We go to sleep, we wake up. And in doing that, uh, we really find that there is no trash.
It's just this. And this moment is who we are. And waking up and going to sleep is who we are. And it's just as easy and just as challenging as that. So I think I'm done with my solo here. Um, And those of you who are ready to get out back into the cold, uh, feel free to go. Um, And we're just going to open this up and talk with each other a little bit. It's really my my favorite part of the evening, not what's preceded. So um, we can talk about, you know, what you've been listening to. We can talk about your practice. We can talk about anything you want. Um, So the floor is now open. Yeah. So you were talking about the effortlessness of, of falling asleep and the effortlessness of waking up. Mm-hmm. Um, in the way you either practice or teach, once you wake up, do you apply any doing or technique, or, or is it more you just sort of sit there with a kind of non-trying and wait till you fall asleep and then wait till you wake up again and recognize? So in other words, is there any is there any doing at all? Absolutely. And it's usually a conditioned reflex. Because often what happens is the mind backfills that that moment of waking up. That moment of waking up is timeless, effortless. It's it's just a happening. The conditioned mind um, is very suspicious of that and thinks, well, I got to do something with this. Or why, why was I asleep in the first place. You know, there I go again. I've wasted, you know, X amount of time in la-la land. And it, it literally backfills that, that fresh moment. So most of the doing is, is in that way. I mean, the, the doing an effort or a, or a tricky, tricky balance. Uh, Vimalas said uh, effort up to a point and then no effort. Because at some point, effort is selfing. And it's, it's part of why we see people after, you know, decades of practice still diligently practicing away. It's not to say don't keep sitting, but sitting happens because it's a wonderful thing to do. Um, effort has a place. And at some point, you know, in, in conversation with your teacher you begin to see that effort is selfing. And there's, a, there's a, a very difficult moment when you get that there's really nothing you can do. Nothing. Because any doing that you're is continuing to, to um, uh, reinforce that center of me. Um, and that's a problem. Part, one of the things that's interesting is when this moment of, of waking up happens in, in, a, in a conversation or in a uh, conflict. Um, it, it's a real challenge uh, to, to feel the momentum. You know, let's say you've got a teenager or you've got a difficult colleague or uh, you're a teenager with a parent, which is sometimes even more challenging. And uh, something's happened. And you're, Rrr! and there's this moment of just, you know, you pop up out of that. 
And it's really interesting to see how the conditioned mind wants to dive back down in the shit and play around in there. You know? Whereas, wow, <laughs> clarity. And it just covers right back over again. And that there's, that there's some preference in the mind to go there rather than to rest in that clarity. Is there something to do about that? No, I think it's stunning enough just when you begin to really see it. Um, because the, the de- detour from that clarity is real suffering. So... Yeah. How does your practice influence your work as a psychotherapist? Well, um, many of my colleagues would be very upset to hear me say this, but it I don't see the two as different at this point. You know, my role as a as a therapist and my my role as a teacher have to do with uh listening. Noticing when internal and external conversations begin to shut down. Uh, We used to call that resistance. Um, And to to bring uh, attention, to bring awareness to those. How how does that feel in the body? What happens in the mind? Um, So listening, noticing these moments of closure and pinching off. Helping people look at thought, the nature of thought, what it does, to begin to not trust it so much. It's like memory. You know, it's, it's really, really unreliable um, in, in many, many ways in terms of interpersonal, emotional, psychological um, relationship. It can, it's got a wonderful place. I mean, it's... I'm not saying get rid of thinking by any stretch. Uh, but I am saying that m- most of the time when we think we're using thinking, it's using us. And we're being driven in a, in a you could call it unconscious way, uh, by the power of conditioned thought. And uh, you put thought, that kind of thought in the driver's seat, it's no wonder we're running off the road all the time. Thought in the passenger seat with intelligence in the driver's seat, that's a pretty good combination. And that's a lot of what I do as a therapist. Now, I I love to work with people who have a practice. Uh, One of the the real, I mean, we could talk for a long time about the disadvantages and the problems with psychoanalysis. One of the real wonderful parts of that work is the opportunity to meet with your with your analyst, your teacher, your whatever you want to call them, every day. I mean, when I my analytic hour was seven o'clock in the morning, five days a week, boom, on the couch, fresh dreams, um, and it was it was wonderful to have that regularity, that that ongoing intensive relationship. Now, if you've got a practice. You can create that for yourself. You may see your therapist once or twice or three times a month. But you've got your practice every single day 
on and off the cushion. And that can turn an hour's worth of so-called therapy into uh, a daily practice. And I think it's that, you know, that's the... I think that's one of the ways that uh, uh, a meditation practice and a psychotherapy practice can fit together. Sure. Yeah, Peter. I heard you say once that, uh, you know, like 95% of the things we think about are a waste of time. And uh, you know, it's just, a, you know, and then you, you mentioned tonight that uh, you know, there's good thinking is clean and straightforward and, and uh, it's, it's, it's not rocket science, but recognize it. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between about trash thinking and, uh, and clean thinking? Yeah. Um, you know, thinking is uh, it is a problem-solving tool, uh, amongst other things. I mean, it's it's also a creative tool in some ways. Um, the the trick is to notice when its usefulness has run its course. Um, for example. I tend to I tend to have a certain amount of anxiety that comes up around this this kind of a talk. I don't do you know I don't do large groups like this. I don't you know I don't know people here, um, and so it's like, oh wow, wonder what this is going to be like. I wonder if I'm going to make sense. I wonder if you know uh, people are going to like this or they're not. They're going to find it useful or they're not. Half the room's going to bail you know at halftime. So. So I can watch that, and I find that a good way to, to you know, if, I, if I've not suffered enough, engaging that is a real good way to get my suffering quotient in. <laughs> it's, it's cheap, it's not costly, doesn't hurt anybody, um, and it's not much fun. So to, and, and to get in the way of that is not helpful. That's, that's treating it as trash. So, can I, can I rest in what knows that? There's a knowing of that, right? And so that just works through, fine. And there's a certain amount of preparation that I need to do. Uh, I need to have something to come in and try and make some sense about. So I'll work on that, and I'll let it play around in, in, in the mind. Um, and I'll find myself thinking about it, at times, and and uh, and then I notice when when uh, that's not useful anymore. That uh, I've thought about this about as much as I can, and it's re- recycling the same stuff. You know, when it starts to get predictable, repetitious, and a little boring, you know you've pretty much reached the the limit of what's going to be useful. And then you have to wa- ask, well, what's driving that? What's, what's going to then drive the, the desire to keep doing that? And everybody in the room has, a, has an example of that in your own life, right, where you've got something going on, and you're going to figure it out. And then you notice that, oh, I've come up with the same solution. This is now like the 30th time. Hmm. Well, to ask, what's up with that? You know, what's driving that? Uh, often part of what's driving it 
is our uh, deep-seated fear that the future will kill us if we're not highly prepared for every eventuality. Okay? Which is a real fool's errand because since the future's never happened ever in the way that we think about it, and what we think about it is only based on the past, there's no way we can come up with a foolproof plan to deal with what's coming because we don't know what's coming. And so there's, a, there's an existential fear that is often underlying a lot of this stuff. Um, and if I keep, you know, rah, 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 I never get to that. And if, and if I stay with the body and how the body feels, if I begin to observe the, the sort of repetitious nature of what the mind's got itself caught up in, and I begin to rest with the breath and the body and the, the nowness of my life, space actually begins to open up. This becomes a little less tight, a little looser, begins to wobble a little bit, and it begins to allow what's underneath it to come up. Now, the problem with allowing what is underneath it to come up is we almost always think it's not going to be good news. Right? Oh, yeah, well, the future might kill me. Well, Doug, you're coming to CIMC. You really think so? You know, I was, I, um, years and years ago, my family and I went to Taiwan. I, my wife and I had lived there for a couple of years. And I was an Episcopal priest at the time, and I, um, I went, uh, went back and I was invited to do a Eucharist and a sermon in this Chinese-English-speaking congregation. And at that time, I was, I was very much in, engaged and enthralled with deep ecology. And um, so <laughs> I was really torn about, well, do I, do I really want to talk about what I'm passionate about? Or do I want to give them, you know, sort of disguised... And my wife at the time said, uh, uh, I don't know what you're so worried about. One, they don't know you. Two, they're never going to see you again. Three, you, you, you're out of town. Like, as soon as this thing's over, say what you want to say. Like, oh, wow. Thank you, dear. Uh, <laughs> and, it's, and it's that kind of, of, we can do that for ourselves. Now, it's often very helpful to be in relationship with a friend, with a teacher, with another practitioner, uh, to reflect this back to us. Because often, I mean, you've all, all of you have been in the situation where you've been on one end and you're just totally lost in this stuff, and somebody comes up and says, mm, excuse me, and you go, oh. And you've been on the other side where you're watching somebody go through this and you're thinking, why are you doing this to yourself? Excuse me. And, you know, if you're both lucky, they, they kind of pop out of it. So it, we can learn to catch this for ourselves. And something like Boehm's book is a, is a tremendous asset in getting a kind of map around how thought works. Because it's pretty complicated. It's pretty complicated. Thought as a system. He was a uh, friend and colleague and, uh, of uh, uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti. He's a physicist, brilliant, brilliant guy. And um, this, this book uh, really explicates Kay's, uh, Krishnamurti's approach to working with the mind uh, in, in, a, in a pretty amazing way, I think. It's not an easy read.
I mean, Bohm's a physicist, right? Uh, but it's it's uh, it's well worth the effort, and it and it's written conversationally. It's recorded um, uh, recorded uh, dialogues and conversations in Ojai over the course of a week. So. B O H M, David. So what else? So anything that you've uh, always wanted to ask about Zen or Vipassana and never did? Yeah. Really? <laughs> There's a difference between giving into that and then, and it's really time to get up. Um, I guess it's not always clear cut to know which is which while you're sitting. Um, right. So, Tony, if you could talk about that. Yeah. I think it's often not clear cut. I mean, it's part of this practice is uh, to develop wisdom and discernment around just that kind of thing. You know, to begin to watch how the mind says, if I don't, if I don't scratch this ear, my head will explode. <laughs> cool, <laughs> you know. <laughs> we'll write you up in the Journal of American Medicine or something. Um, so, sometimes it's just that obvious, but it, doesn't, it often doesn't seem obvious. I mean, we can say things to ourselves like that, right? I mean, if I'm just going to die if I, you know, if I can't move. That's one of the advantages of, of longer periods of sitting. Uh, it's sort of a learning by discovery. You find out that much of what you think is going to kill you doesn't. And much of what is unbearable is bearable. Now, it's also helpful to know your body. Um, I'm here to attest to the fact that you can injure yourself sitting still doing nothing. I know. Don't spread the word because it's not a pretty picture. Uh, but I was sitting a long retreat out at IMS, and this was, gosh, 1990, um, and was just like on fire with the practice, and you know, working really closely with Larry and with George Bowman, and I was I was you know sitting cross-legged, and I was great. Well, I sat through. Uh, you know, a 45-minute period and a 30-minute walk, and then an hour period and another 45-minute walk and another one. And, and when I got up, after several hours of sitting there, my leg was asleep, which was, you know, that happens, right? Well, it didn't come back. And um, I'd, had, I'd had a number of, of low back injuries, and I'd been in, uh, I'd done a lot of martial arts practice for about 30 years, and my lower back was pretty screwed up. And I think that that had a, a part to play in it. But really, the part to play in it was just, what was the title? Stupid. Right? I mean, that's, that was really stupid. And it was driven by what I thought was right action, wise practice. That's how much askew we can go with this stuff, right? Um, and... Um, so to begin to find some balance, you know, know your body. Do you have injuries? 
you know, when your lower right side back starts to hurt a lot, is that an indication that, you know, yeah, that, that dislocation is back to haunt you and you may not get out of bed in the morning and you better get up and stand at your cushion? Or maybe it's time to leave. Right? So know your body, number one, and respect it. The body is so much smarter than we are in, when it comes to this stuff. Secondly, watch the mind. Joseph Goldstein, I think, gave one of the, one of the most helpful uh, ways to assess this. Can I sit with this one more breath? Is it useful to sit with this one more breath? Now, if, if you're doing this breath after breath, and you're, you know, you're finding your shoulders start to rise up around your and your teeth are starting to clench, can I sit with this one more breath? Yeah, I can sit with this one more breath. Ah! Clearly, you've kind of gone off the, off the track a little bit, right? So, common sense. Explore sitting a little bit longer. Explore the, the reactive need to move because we're so driven by reactivity, by reflexes that are just firing off all the time. I mean, if you, it, it can be useful to, to take a vow. I will take a sitting period and I will not move. I often ask people to do this, to practice with me. You know, take a 30-minute sit or a 40-minute sit and do not move. I don't, not, not a twitch, not a one of these, not a one of these, not a twiggle of the toe, nothing, not a sit still, and then watch what happens. Now, if your body is going to go on fire and you know it after 20 minutes, then do it for 20 minutes. But hold yourself to that and just watch what happens. You're not going to hurt yourself in 15 or 20 minutes, things being equal. Right? And you will be amazed at the subtle little twitches that the, that the mind wants to make with the body. It's just really interesting. And then remember what goes on off the cu- on the cushion goes on off the cushion. Hey, this is just, uh, sitting is just a, a, a rarefied condition to observe what you're doing all the time. And that's, that's not good news either, but there you go. Uh, <laughs> And give you an opportunity to really see what's going on. Right. So watch the watch what happens with the body. Now, if you're you're sitting with discomfort, and if you do any any sitting at all, other than you know five or ten minutes here and there, your body's going to hurt. And if you do long periods of sitting, gravity begins to take over, and the body hurts. The body also accumulates all kinds of energy that we're not aware of during the day. Um, Ajahn Chah said, we, we find backwash when we sit in the evening. You know, it's like all this stuff we've been out on the leading edge of all day, right, that's been accumulating, and we stop, boom, it hits us from behind. And it's, it's in the body. I mean, evening sittings, for those of you who do them, can be very uncomfortable because the body's accumulated this stuff all day. Um, so as you sit... Watch this stuff come up. Watch what happens with the mind. Stay with the breath. The breath can be a wonderful anchor to pull back and forth in. You know, it's, it's like titrating our, our nearness to fire uh, or, or cooking oatmeal. Right? If it's too hot, you get oatmeal all over the stove. If it's 
not hot enough. You know, everybody's had undercooked oatmeal. Not a fun way to start the day. Right? So you're looking, to, you're looking to keep the heat modulated, you know, in a way that's useful. The thing with oatmeal, you can pretty much find the right temperature and leave it there uh, and set the timer. Not so with the body, because the body is dynamic. It's moving all the time. So uh, the urge to move comes up. Notice that. And see if you can sit still a little longer. And if it really becomes, you know, you're really starting to fight against it, don't let it get to that point. Move a little bit mindfully. And notice what happens to that sensation. Notice what happens to the mind. How much moving has a significant impact. When is it no longer necessary to move? Again, it's a wonderful life lesson, right? I mean, how many of us, in all kinds of ways, scratch the itch too much? Right? With food or exercise or, you know, alcohol, whatever. Right? We're always, we're a culture that over-scratches our itches to get away from them. So that's, that can be a tremendously valuable learning to just begin to watch that. Um, someone said to me after a, after a long retreat, he said, Doug, you know, the dirty little secret about sitting practice is that moving doesn't help. And there's some real wisdom in that. Uh, it can be helpful in terms of making our practice feel doable. And it very easily slips over into uh, cultivating aversion, cultivating restlessness, cultivating fear, etc. So moving, yes, and developing wisdom and compassion. You know, I mean, this is about fundamentally learning how to take better care of ourselves and those that we care about, which, you know, if we take the bodhisattva vow, it's everybody. How many of you are uh, fairly new to practice? Wow, great. Um, what parts of this has not made sense to you? Because it, I mean, it's, uh, yeah. Have there been parts that just didn't make sense? Yeah. Hmm. Me too. We'll come back to that. Yeah. Uh, I think the idea of not wanting to attach yourself to things or people. Mm. I don't know how, I mean, I don't know how to rationalize why I make decisions to be with people. I just don't want to attach myself to them. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, yeah, attachment has gotten a kind of a strange reputation in Vipassana circles particularly, I think, but in all Buddhist meditation practices. Um Attachment is something that happens. Um, If we don't attach to our parents and our parents don't attach to us, people like me end up treating attachment disorders. We've all got 
attachment disorder <laughs> to one degree or another. Right? And 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 I when I say that I I'm, I mean to take the pathology out of it. Right? Attaching is something that happens, and we don't know really. I mean, if we really look carefully, we don't know why we end up attached to one person and not another. It's really a it's mysterious. Um, we find that we're becoming quote unquote attached. There's nothing wrong with that. It's normal human stuff. Um, and it's a fertile field for suffering because what we're attaching to is something or someone who is essentially unreliable, unpredictable, and is going to disappoint us because we expect them to be other than human. And that's fine. That's inevitable. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. It's just how it goes. Having a practice means beginning to work with that, not blaming the other person or the other whatever for the fact that I'm having a tough time. You know, that I don't make you responsible for my uh, sense of well-being. I mean, given that, you know, other things being equal, we're not talking about an abusive relationship, but that's a whole, that's a whole separate conversation. But just normal, you know, the normal sturm und drang of human relationships. I used to I used to tell a story about uh, my sudden awakening around light switches. Uh, my wife had ADHD, and uh, she would leave doors open and lights on, and you know I would make myself nuts about that. Um, and I was kind of skillful about it. I mean, I wasn't a total jerk. Of course, she's not here to report on that. She would have a different story, I suspect. Um, but at some point, I got, Doug, what's your problem? Does your index finger not work? Why don't you just go like that? I'm now responsible for my own suffering. The light's off. Okay? Now, I take care of that piece. I'm no longer dependent on her being a different human being. It's one of the real rubs we get into in relationships. We expect people to be someone other than who they are. You know, if you'd just make the bed differently, or you'd just show up on time, or you'd be, you know, you ex- whatever. If you just be that, I'd be happy. Which means, if you'd be not you, I'd be happy. So why am I in this relationship, and why are you hanging around? <laughs> so it's, and then I begin to have a different conversation. It's like I'm no longer on the other person's case about them being who they are. And so when at the end of the month I say, you know, I've been paying all the electric bills, and the lights seem to be on a lot, is there some way we can work out this out that's going to feel a little more equitable to me? What do you think? That has the potential for a conversation that can use thought in a skillful way. God damn it, why is the light on again? Why? Uh, that's thought not skillful. Right? So, again, attachment, relationship, working around this edge, and that, that our relationships really are, will always reflect us back to ourselves. My my irritability, my compassion, my fear, my anger, my joy, my sorrow. 
it's it's not about this other person. I mean, it is, but this is being re- this is being reflected back to me. Can I learn to stay with this? Can I not turn the responsibility for my joy, my discomfort, my irritability over to somebody else being somebody else? That's crazy, right? I mean, that's that's like the definition of crazy. So these, you know, attachment is inevitable, and it's a wonderful thing. And it's, a, it's also a, inevitably a painful thing and gives us wonderful opportunities to practice. I'm convinced that if, if before people got married, they really uh, had to take some sort of, I don't know, drug, pill, course, whatever, to get that this is inevitable in relationships. Inevitably, in any relationship we spend any time in, we will be reflected back to ourselves, be uncomfortable with that, blame the other person, expect them to be different, and be miserable as a result. It, it, it happens like the sun comes up in the east and sets in the west. And to learn that that is an opportunity for tremendous freedom in relationship. So that's kind of a long-winded around attachment. (laughs) Nothing wrong with attachment. (laughs) Relative and absolute. Hmm. Can you say a little bit more about that? I've just heard it thrown around every so often. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've not I've not heard it put quite that way, but I think that's a that's a really helpful way to frame it. Um, you know, whenever we get into uh, one thing and another, it's a fertile field for all sorts of separation and and choosing and and uh, discriminating and separation. Really. Um, I mean, what it refers to if 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 you, um, uh, hmm. so here's an example. The the uh, the thinking that's propelling what I'm what's coming out of my mouth right now is largely conditioned. I mean, it's coming out in ways that you know I've not I've not experienced it before. But it's sort of like rearranging the puzzle pieces and coming out with a little bit different result. Now that's going on, and there's an awareness of that that is not conditioned. They're not separate. And they're not the same. And we could go on with other, you know, with other ideas about that. For example, everybody in this room right now is hearing, right? Um, but right now you're not aware of your gender. Where was that? You're not aware of your age. Then it pops up maybe, well, I'm whatever. 
there's a knowing of, and they go together. Right? right now, what's being known is hearing. Thinking can be known. They're not separate, but they're not the same. And it's easy to get lost down the rabbit hole of trying to figure this out. Right now, everybody is doing exactly what they should be doing. Otherwise, you'd be doing something else. And that's always the case. You know, it's easy to say, well, I should have. I mean, I look back over my life of, you know, 66 plus years, and I think, wow, I should have done you know, it, it, the list is progressively longer every day. Um, and the, the real truth of it is, the particularly the, the, the more uh, painful, problematic, difficult things, if I could have done those things differently, I would have done them differently in a heartbeat. I did them the only way I could do them. I didn't get a choice. I didn't get a choice. And in that way, there's no blame for any of us. Now, it's easy for somebody to jump in and say, well, then there's no responsibility. Wrong. We live in a cause and effect universe. We are often in a position of cleaning up for things that we had no choice over doing. Now, as we practice deeply and we mature and open, and you know, we, I think we, we make fewer messes, at least that's my experience, and we, we, get, uh, we get less caught off in self and other recrimination around the cleanup process. And that's wonderful. I mean, that takes so much of the, you know, so much of the grinding of the gears out of our life to really get that, yeah, if I could have done a better talk tonight, I would have done a better talk tonight. And I'm sure, you know, when I'm by myself tonight and thinking about this, I oh, why didn't I? Because I couldn't. If I could have, I would have. Now, can I learn something from that? Sure. But that's the, it's easy, so easy to get caught up in this stuff. Uh, and again, that's the value of practice. It makes us stop, look, and listen. Right? Like, what was the book? Everything I, I, everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. Right. Stop, look, and listen. Well, we are getting close. Um, Anything else before we venture back out into the cold, dark night? <laughs> Just an idea. Well, right now I'm looking a couple of book, looking at a couple of books by Steve Hagen. Uh, he's a um, uh, Soto Zen teacher out in uh, Minnesota. Um, Soto Zen is is very loaded with all kinds of ritual and form. Um, he's really a stripped-down guy. Uh, Joko Beck uh, is just wonderful, a Zen teacher, uh, but without the stink of Zen, which you find, and that's a, that's, that's a common term in Zen. <laughs> I'm not like dissing Zen here. Uh, um, but Joko Beck's stuff is really, really wonderful. And I think in some way, in, in many ways, very compatible with what's taught here at CIMC. Um, so Joko Beck, Steve Hagen. Uh, 
Vimala Takar, I her Himalayan pearls is. I think you could pick that up and you know read it periodically for the rest of your life. It's uh, it's really a, a, a gem. Um, Himalayan pearls. Um, so those are those are a few. Yeah, I think Joseph has a new book coming out. Oh, Larry has a new com- book coming out. So um, I would actually bump that up to the top of the list, followed by Joko, Steve, and <laughs> if you're listening to this, Larry, you're welcome. <laughs> All set? All right. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.